My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Lynn Gale and Lindsay Lambert. It's not even the end of January, and already there has been no shortage of Indigenous and other anti-colonial voices pointing out how this year's lavish Canada 150 sesquicentennial celebrations are an expensive, tasteless addition to the long list of ways in which the feel-good rhetoric from the Trudeau Liberals about a renewed nation-to-nation relationship with Indigenous peoples is amounting to little more than a cover for the same old settler colonial substance. From pipeline approvals to land claim processes, from unequal funding for Indigenous child welfare to contaminated water in reserve communities, little seems to have changed except the packaging. And in that context, it is hard to see Canada 150 as anything other than a celebration and continuation of the settler colonial violence that has spanned that century and a half. Today's episode is about one specific instance among the many across the country that seems packed with poignant symbolism, the ongoing willful violation of a sacred indigenous site in the heart of Ottawa, that is, the Chaudière Falls and three nearby islands which sit in the Ottawa River just west of Parliament, that is happening with the blessing of the Trudeau Liberals. The land on which Ottawa sits is unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe land. The falls and the islands have been a sacred site not only to the Algonquins, but to many other indigenous peoples for thousands of years. They were a site of meeting, of peacemaking, of ceremony. As colonization took place and Ottawa took shape, the falls and the islands were taken over by industry, particularly the lumber industry, with a dam completely effacing the falls in 1908. Yet even in the mid-20th century, the official planning process that set the mandate for the National Capital Commission recognized that industrial uses would not last forever and recommended that the area be renaturalized. A little later, a respected Algonquin elder, the late grandfather William Commanda, put forth a similar vision. Return the falls and islands to Algonquin stewardship and control, free the falls from the dam and otherwise renaturalize the area, and in the spirit of the traditional use of the islands as a meeting place for different nations, construct a center for reconciliation and healing on one of the islands. As the final lumber company wrapped up its operations, it was widely expected in the community that this indeed would happen. Yet a couple of years before the end of their mandate, the Harper Conservatives made a shift. Suddenly, the land was promised to a private property developer called Windmill, and their plan is now to use the islands to build condominiums. Trudeau has replaced Harper, but this plan to violate a sacred indigenous site right in the heart of Ottawa is slated to continue moving forward in 2017 with the full support of the Canadian state. Lynn Gale is an Algonquin woman who traces her roots to the Ottawa River Valley, though she herself lives in Peterborough, Ontario. She holds a PhD in Indigenous Studies and is a writer and activist. Lindsay Lambert is a white settler man, a historian, and also a writer. Both have been involved in various capacities in the fight against the ongoing colonial development of the Chaudière Falls and the three associated islands. 
And listeners may be interested to learn about other aspects of the resistance to windmill and the proposed condo development, and they can search on rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca for the episode of Talking Radical Radio from August 2016 with members of Stop Windmill, a settler solidarity group that has been very active on the issue. Gail and Lambert talk with me about the significance and sacredness of the site for Indigenous peoples, the history of colonial development there, the recent fight to realize Grandfather Commanda's vision, and the significance of the ongoing violation of this sacredness in the context of Canada 150. I spoke with them by Skype to phone from Peterborough and Ottawa, respectively. from the Ottawa River Valley, but I've never lived there. My name is Lynn Gale, and I'm a writer. And I have a PhD in Indigenous Studies, and my topic was the Algonquin land claim process. My name is Lindsay Lambert. I live in Ottawa. I'm a researcher and published historian, among other things. I tend to travel in the Indigenous and Métis community. I'm not. My mother is Russian. My dad is first-generation Canadian of English parents. I've been concerned about the Chaudière Falls and Islands for many years now. And, of course, now that the islands are being scheduled for development for condominiums and commercial, I'm doing as much as I can to prevent that. What has become Chaudière Falls is known as a sacred place to Anishinaabe people. We call it a kipoptic, which means Pipe Bull Falls. It's a very sacred place for us. Champlain recorded the Anishinaabe people engaging in ceremony there in the 1600s. The archaeological record has uncovered that Anishinaabe, or I'm going to say Indigenous ancestors, have been visiting that place for over 5,000 years. To remain within the Algonquin Anishinaabe worldview, one thing that I think is important is that places where rock, water, wind, and fire, the four sacred elements, intersect are always considered sacred places. And that place, the four sacred elements do intersect. Also, where water boils is considered a very sacred place where the spirits come to visit us. But this place in particular is very special in that, well, we called it a kapuktik, the falls, and that means pipe bowl of falls. Part of the falls was an almost perfect horseshoe or circle, and that's considered the pipe bowl. And then underneath the water, there's a passageway that water goes through, large amount of water goes through and then comes out at the end. And that's considered the pipe stem. That land and waterscape is where Creator placed the first sacred pipe on the earth. Our land and waterways, they carry our stories and that carries the story of Creator's first pipe. So it's very special. But then also the three islands downstream Chaudière, Albert, and Victoria Island, they were peace-meeting islands where different nations, they came there to hammer out peace agreements or to ensure they have good relations. So the weapons that could cause harm would be left on the mainland and people would come to the islands and work out their issues or have meetings. So it's a very, very sacred place. The larger area is known as Ekegojuan, and the falls itself is called Akipuktik. The Chaudière Falls was a major beautiful thing. This is why Philemon Wright settled here in 1800 in what's now the city of Gatineau on the Quebec side. Then I found records 
an August 1854 order in council passed by the government of the province of Canada. This is when Canada was Quebec and Ontario, so that area. The order in council reserved the Chaudière Islands and others, plus a piece of the Ottawa Riverbank, for public use. It specifies that if it's not required for provincial works, it can be disposed of, and the recommendation is leasing. Okay, But then industry was clamoring to make use of the water power, and that was considered to be for the greater public good at the time, like it creates jobs and prosperity. And actually, Ottawa became the world's biggest lumber manufacturing center. But then the area was surveyed into lots. They're hydraulic lots. These were for the construction of mills on the water and then building lots. The hydraulic lots were leased, still are. The building lots are questionable. The developer is insisting that they're privately owned. But from historical records, they're not. I have an 1869 letter from Sir John E. MacDonald saying that the first industrial occupants, Messrs. Purley and Patty, had just a license to occupy, like not ownership as such, and that it was all crown land. There was actually a legal issue in 1902 as to whether the islands are under the jurisdiction of the federal government or the province of Ontario, and the conclusion is that they're owned by the government of the Dominion of Canada except for grants issued before Confederation. And, uh, of course, McDonald's letter said there are no grants before Confederation. But anyway, it's been occupied industrially by very powerful men, especially J.R. Booth, who ran it as his own fiefdom and came into conflict with government about it. As an example, he was negotiating with the federal government at the beginning of the last century to lease a portion of it. They couldn't come to an agreement. What happened? He just occupied it, built on it, and was there without paying any rent for 18 years, and then went to the government and said, hey, how about if I buy this from you? Then ultimately, Booth's title to all this passed on to a paper manufacturer, E.B. Eddy, and then in 1998, it was Domtar who bought them. But the long-term plan has been to reclaim those islands as parkland. The federal government commissioned a master plan which governs the long-term growth and development of the capital region. It was published in 1950. On page 230, he states that the most effective improvement will be the central park at the Chaudière Falls once the heavy and obnoxious industries are gone. This refers to the Chaudière, Albert, and Victoria Islands. This is the federal government's master plan. The National Capital Commission was created in 1958 to implement his recommendations. It's given us Ottawa as we know it now. It's given us Confederation Square, the Green Belt, the Queensway, the Parkway. Again, this is his most effective improvement. And the National Capital Commission thought it was going to be getting it. This is a long-term plan. And then Domtar put their holdings up for sale. And in 2012, the NCC went to Treasury Board for funding and they were turned down. Basically, this long-term plan of reclaiming the land just over four years ago, was completely inverted in favor of private development under Harper's mandate. And basically everything has been just pushed in that direction. They've been ignoring their own plans, ignoring opposition, and it's frightening. So, Lynn, why don't you put the history of development of the site that Lindsay has just been describing into the broader context of the impacts of colonialism on the Algonquin people. The Algonquin Anishinaabe, they're one of the nations that Champlain first identified in the Ottawa River Valley. So, you know, there's no doubt that it is Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. 
And I'm going to say that it was shared because I know there are some Mohawk people that lived around in the area and also the Wendat people came through this area on their migration journey. So I wouldn't say it was solely Algonquin and Anishinaabe. But also I think it's really important to value all of those beings were here before us, like, you know, the moose and the eel and the sea life and water life and the trees and the water itself and the rock. They were all here before humans came. And they are important beings and they carry important knowledge governed by natural law. They know how to be here in a much more effective way than humans do with their silly, pitiful, human-made laws. Everything was beautiful and everything was in its place is what we're taught before humans came. And then through European arrival, things changed. They took control of our lands and our waterways through the doctrine of discovery and through various constitution acts. And they divided our territory into the province of Ontario and province of Quebec. Canada actually started right there on Algonquin territory with Upper and Lower Canada being Ontario and Quebec. So that's really, really important that what has become the nation state is happening and continues to happen right there on Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. And they divided us. What used to unite us now divides us. We have about nine Algonquin First Nation communities in Quebec and one or two, I think, actually recognized in Ontario and a large majority of non-status Algonquin, of course, because that was the goal was to get rid of status Indians. They divided us through language and religion and laws, and they've been quite effective. I think now it's actually even more strategic that they have to mask the Algonquin and Anishinaabe and who they are because I think it threatens the nation-state called Canada. And they continue to do it through the comprehensive land claim policy and through the provincial divisions, and they're doing it right in front of everyone's eyes. It's cultural genocide, actually, what they're doing. A lot of people think genocide means just like mass killing, and that's not at all what it means. It means imposing your national pattern on an oppressed group. So it means denying a national pattern of an oppressed group and then the imposition of the national pattern of the oppressor, which is essentially what Canada is doing to all Indigenous people. I think that's what Canada's national strategy is right now, is to deny the Algonquin Anishinaabe and anything that's important and sacred to them, such as a Kapuktuk and the islands downstream, because we threaten Canada's nation statehood. And it's really quite frustrating in that a lot of people don't realize that really effective cultural genocide, it's very insidious and it can happen right in front of your eyes and you're not even aware that it's happening. What I find really frustrating about what they're doing with this sacred place is that whenever, um, for example, in recently, I think it was July 2015, here in Peterborough, there was a mosque that was damaged and destroyed, and Trudeau was deeply disturbed. But yet, just down from Parliament Hill, they are participating in the further destruction of a really, really sacred place. And I am kind of like at a loss with that. Why do people think that only human-made structures are sacred and not natural sacred places such as Chaudhuya Falls and the islands downstream? And it's particularly heartbreaking when you think that this new government is talking about a renewed nation-to-nation and also talking about reconciliation, yet here they are destroying a sacred place. Tell me more about Algonquin elder William Commanda's vision for the falls and the islands. I'd known William Commander well, and he had a vision for the falls and the islands. And actually, it didn't originate with him. This has been the ongoing. 
He's probably the most prominent advocate for it. This is freeing the Chaudière Falls from the Ring Dam. The falls were effaced in 1908 with the construction of the Ring Dam across the entire span. And then downstream, there's Chaudière and Albert Islands. These are the islands the developer wants to develop. But William wanted those to be renaturalized as parkland for everybody to share. And then just adjacent to those, a little further downstream, is Victoria Island. And he wanted an indigenous healing and peace center there. This whole idea isn't limited to being an indigenous vision, like this isn't sort of a conflict between white and indigenous society, because the Chaudière Falls were Ottawa's oldest and most beloved tourist attraction until they were dammed for industry. They were considered second only to Niagara, and a lot of people considered them more interesting in their variety and setting. They're really wonderful. How have people been responding to the current plan, that is, for the developer Windmill to build condos on the islands? And maybe, Lynn, you could start off by talking about the various ways that people in the Algonquin context have been responding. The Algonquins in Ontario are in the process of a land claim. As I said, the Algonquins are on both the Ontario side and the Quebec side. But through the comprehensive land claim process, Canada and Ontario are just dealing with what's happening here in Ontario, separate than what's happening in Quebec. And so now in the comprehensive land claim process, we've been divided. Now, this has been going on for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. And early on, we heard the chief say that there was a handshake agreement that the Ontario Algonquins would deal with this side of the territory and the Quebec Algonquins would deal with their side of the river. But as things have moved along, and now the Algonquins of Ontario, oh, that's a really bad deal. I could get into the details of that. But the Algonquins of Ontario are set now to extinguish their land rights. They just recently ratified an AIP, if you can call it ratification. It was really poorly done. But they've ratified the agreement in principle, and they're headed towards a final settlement. It's a little bit scary. I have this fear that Trudeau is pushing for that to be resolved this year, and then he can have it as one of his celebrations of renewing the nation-to-nation relationship and reconciliation, which is far from that because we only get 1.3% of our land and a $300 million buyout, so it's not nation-to-nation at all, but, you know, political rhetoric has this power. And so as we've moved closer and closer to a final agreement, the Algonquins in Quebec are now stepping up and speaking out and saying that we're not okay with the settlement agreement in principle that the AOO is accepting because this land over on the Ontario side is part of their land as well. And the Ottawa River, which includes Chaudière Falls and the Three Islands, that's a shared territory with all Algonquin people. And as Lindsay said, even larger than that. So recently, I think it was in December 2016, the chief for Kitigunzibi First Nation filed an Aboriginal title over Ottawa with the Superior Court of Ontario. And the land that this includes is Parliament Hill, the Supreme Court of Canada, the Parliament Buildings, of course, and the National Library and Archives and the Falls and the Islands. I think what's also really important is that several of the nations in Quebec, they don't want this sacred site further destroyed. They're not happy with the Algonquins of Pequawkanagan and the larger Algonquins of Ontario, that they seem to be okay with this further destruction of the sacred place. One thing that happened here is the government relied on the developer to do the consultations. And what the developer did, again, in this unceded Algonquin territory, 
there are 10 Algonquin reserves or First Nations. There's one on the Ontario side, which is Pitlochnagon, and then there's nine on the Quebec side. What the developer did is they heavily lobbied the two closest reserves, Pitlochnagon in Ontario and then Kitakansibi in Manawaki, Quebec, and told people that this is private land, we can develop as we wish, but if you support us, you will get some jobs and recognition. And then Pequotnagon signed on. But the nine Quebec chiefs, they passed a resolution a bit over a year ago now at the Assembly of First Nations, Quebec Labrador, opposing the development, wanting the land back in Algonquin hands as a park. And they subsequently had that ratified by the national AFN. The government simply wouldn't respond to them. This land claim is sort of a last resort to get the issue addressed. But really, as I found from the historical documentation, it appears that there's certainly evidence that there is no private ownership on those islands. It's all crown land. Tell me more how each of you have been involved in working against the proposed development. Valuing Grandfather William Commander's vision to have the place re-naturalized and the islands be a place for all nations to meet. Of course, as an Algonquin, I value that. And of course, as an Algonquin, I value the importance of Indigenous knowledge and preserving our sacred places, just like mosques have a right to be preserved, so do Indigenous sacred places. Sacred beliefs are really, really crucial. And I think that sacred beliefs are far more rational and sustainable than the current economic paradigm. Beliefs are very powerful and important. All knowledge systems have beliefs, not just spiritual traditions or philosophies have beliefs. Western science has a belief system as well as does the economic system. So for people to dismiss beliefs as not important, they really don't understand that all knowledge systems have beliefs. And if a knowledge system doesn't have a morality or a sacredness to it, we might want to really think hard about if it's sustainable. So I think that is the foundation to my process of thinking. I live in Peterborough, but I went to Ottawa for a month last year because I wanted to visit this sacred place. actually spent a month tying prayer ribbons to the bridge that was closest to Shadier Falls with people from Free the Falls who helped me do that. I also put lots of tobacco down and prayed, and I gave back an eagle feather to the waterways there. What else have I been doing? listening a lot to and helping uh, Lindsay as, as much as I can. He's showed me a lot of really beautiful pictures of the falls before they were dammed, and they're on my website. I've also been spending time just speaking out about it and learning about it and blogging about it. And I have a book that's coming out. It's called Claiming Anishinaabe, Decolonizing the Human Spirit with the University of Regina Press. And it's coming out in September 2017. And two of the chapters are about Shadier Falls and the sacredness of that place. I think I'm going to go back this summer and, again, do an installation on the bridge, Shadier Bridge. It's a place, again, where Creator placed the first sacred pipe. And I think I might do an installation about the sacred pipe there on the bridge. Also, in June 17th of 2016, Andre Kazaban, with some people from Free the Falls, organized a sacred walk from Chaudière Island to Parliament Hill. About five or six hundred people did that walk, and what I did is I made a giant pipe. I think it must be about 12 feet long, and I started the walk. That was, for me, very meaningful, very difficult thing for me to do to make that great big giant sacred pipe and to carry it from Chaudière Island to Parliament Hill. Physically difficult, but also 
emotionally, spiritually difficult to put myself out there in the in the front when I would much rather not be in the front. But I'm at the point where I'm thinking somebody has to speak up about what's happening, about the destruction of Algonquin Anishinaabe sacred places. For years, I've been advocating freeing the Shodier Falls, renaturalizing the islands as parkland. This is before this long-term plan was overturned by the Harper government. What I've been doing, especially since the surprise development plans, is I've been basically doing historical research into the property ownership and putting together information like ammunition to use politically or legally in what is very much a rigged situation. And maybe to close things out, Lynn, you could talk about the significance of this violation of sacred Indigenous space in the context of the Canada 150 sesquicentennial celebrations. Trudeau is talking about the renewed nation-to-nation relationship and reconciliation. He's using this rhetoric even though he's continuing to impose on Indigenous people their land claim policy, which forces us to extinguish our land rights. During the 150th celebration of Canada, one of the things that they're going to be doing is shining a light on the dam, the ugly concrete dam that masks and hides a really, really important Delgonquin Anishinaabe sacred place known as Pipe Bowl Falls. And they're actually marketing it as part of their celebrations. So you have to wonder, what is it about us? What is it about Canadians that we don't examine the rhetoric? of what Canada is using and we continue to allow Canada to do what it's doing to Indigenous people and Indigenous sacred places. I think a lot of Canadians don't really quite understand the importance of sacred beliefs and don't understand the importance of valuing Indigenous people. You know, Miriam Monsef, she's a cabinet minister, she stood up and she said, I want to first acknowledge that we're on Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. And that was wonderful that she did that. But standing up and acknowledging our land is not enough. We really need to ask ourselves, what does that really mean, especially within the context of renewed nation-to-nation relationship and reconciliation? A lot of people don't really understand what nation-to-nation means. Indigenous people have intellectuals and they have governance structures and they're very capable beings, capable of building their own schools and their own health care and their own courts. And what nation-to-nation means is much more than just rhetoric. It means that if there's 100 acres of land, the Indigenous people get 50 acres and the settlers get 50 acres. And with our 50 acres, we use the land and resources to develop structures of governance that serve us. That's what nation-to-nation means. I'm really kind of sick and tired of the Trudeau government and the rhetoric. You have been listening to my interview with Lynn Gale and Lindsay Lambert. We've been talking about the fight to protect the Chaudière Falls and nearby islands in Ottawa. They're a sacred site to the Algonquin Anishinaabe and other indigenous peoples, and the islands are slated for development into condominiums. To find out more about the work of these two writers and activists, go respectively to lynngale.com, that's L-Y-N-N-G-E-H-L dot com, and mlindsaylambert.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.